Welcome to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. No human or team of humans could possibly keep up with the avalanche of information produced by many of today's physics and astronomy experiments. Some of them record terabytes of data every day, and the torrent is only increasing. The Square Kilometer Array, a radio telescope slated to switch on in the mid-2020s, will generate about as much data traffic each year as the entire Internet. The deluge has many scientists turning to artificial intelligence for help. With minimal human input, AI systems can plow through mountains of data, highlighting anomalies and detecting patterns that humans could never have spotted. These systems include artificial neural networks, computer-simulated networks of neurons that mimic the function of brains. Of course, the use of computers to aid in scientific research goes back about 75 years. And the method of manually poring over data in search of meaningful patterns originated millennia earlier. But some scientists are arguing that the latest techniques in machine learning and AI represent a fundamentally new way of doing science. One such approach is known as generative modeling. It can help identify the most plausible theory among competing explanations for observational data based solely on the data and without any pre-programmed knowledge of what physical processes might be at work in the system being studied. Proponents of generative modeling see it as novel enough to be considered a potential third way of learning about the universe. Traditionally, we've learned about nature through observation. Think of Johannes Kepler poring over Tycho Brahe's tables of planetary positions and trying to discern the underlying pattern. Kepler eventually deduced that planets move in elliptical orbits. Science has also advanced through simulation. An astronomer might model the movement of the Milky Way and its neighboring galaxy, Andromeda, and predict that they'll collide in a few billion years. Both observation and simulation help scientists generate hypotheses that can then be tested with further observations. But astrophysicist Kevin Shawinsky says generative modeling is different from both of these approaches. It's basically a third approach between observations and simulation. It's a different way to approach the problem, and it's not going to replace any of the others, but it's like okay, we have the observations on this problem that we don't understand, we've run the simulations, and we're still not clear on what's going on. Well, maybe using this kind of approach could help resolve that. Shawinsky, a co-founder of the automated machine learning company Modulos, is one of generative modeling's most enthusiastic proponents. But some scientists see generative modeling and other new techniques simply as power tools for doing traditional science. Still, most agree that AI is having an enormous impact and that its role in science will only grow. Brian Nord is an astrophysicist at Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory in Illinois. He uses artificial neural networks to study the cosmos. Nord wonders if we'll be able to automate everything a human scientist can do. How well is it defined what a scientist does? So we do some math. Now we do also some computing. We experiment. We try to do rigorous reproducible experiments that make new knowledge. And I wonder if we were to break that down, 
is there any part of that that can't be automated? I don't know. It's a bit of a chilling thought. Ever since graduate school, astrophysicist Kevin Shawinsky has been making a name for himself in data-driven science. While working on his doctorate, he faced the task of classifying thousands of galaxies based on their appearance. When I was doing my PhD, I was supposed to classify some galaxies. And I looked at all the available methods at the time, and none of them were really good enough for what I wanted to do. In particular, I looked at neural nets and what was around at the time, and it was neither fast enough nor was it accurate enough. So I decided in the end, let me just sit down and do it myself. But he ran into the problem of not having enough manpower, in the form of student volunteers, to do the counting. And so we said, well, how do we do more of image classification tasks? And again, at the time, the neural network technology just wasn't good enough, and we said, Oh, we can crowdsource it. And so the Galaxy Zoo Citizen Science Project was born. Beginning in 2007, ordinary computer users helped astronomers by logging their best guesses as to which galaxy belonged in which category. Majority rule typically led to correct classifications. The project was a success, but Shawinsky says AI has made it obsolete. If you turn it around now, and say, do we still need to do Galaxy Zoo to get these classifications? The answer is no. In an afternoon, a talented scientist with a background in machine learning can build a classifier that is as accurate or more accurate than the humans in Galaxy Zoo and run the whole thing in an afternoon in the cloud. Shawinsky turned to the powerful new tool of generative modeling in 2016. Essentially, generative modeling asks... How likely is it, given a certain condition, that you'll observe a specific outcome? The approach has proven incredibly potent and versatile. For example, let's say you feed a generative model a set of images of human faces. Each face is labeled with the person's age. As the computer program combs through the images, or training data, it begins to draw a connection between older faces and an increased likelihood of wrinkles. Eventually, it can age any face it's given. Basically, it can predict the likely physical changes of any given face of any given age. The best-known generative modeling systems are Generative Adversarial Networks, or GANs. After adequate exposure to training data, a GAN can repair images that have damaged or missing pixels, or they can make blurry photographs sharp. They learn to infer the missing information by means of a competition. Here's how it works. There's a part of the network called the generator. Shawinsky says that part creates fake data, while a second part, the discriminator, tries to distinguish fake data from real data. So with each iteration, the generator gets better at, say, making images of human faces. And the discriminator gets better and better at telling which one is real, which one is fake. And so the magic behind the GAN, or the great insight behind the GAN, is that this adversarial component, where the generator tries to get better and better and better at making the fake data, and the discriminator gets better and better at telling whether the data is fake or real, that that feedback loop makes the whole thing extremely powerful. You might have seen the results of this on the internet. Hyper-realistic GAN-produced faces. The images look like real people, even though they don't actually exist. 
More broadly, generative modeling takes sets of data and breaks each of them down into a set of basic abstract building blocks. Scientists refer to this as the data's latent space. The algorithm manipulates elements of the latent space to see how this affects the original data. This helps uncover physical processes that are at work in the system. Shawinsky says the idea of a latent space is abstract and hard to visualize. It's not an intuitive concept. So let me give you an analogy that is not correct, and then I'll tell you why it's not correct. So imagine, again, I was doing this with human faces. Then on the one hand, I could have the real image, like the JPEG image of a human face. And then in the latent space of the network that's been used to analyze those faces, I would have one vector that corresponds to nose shape and another vector corresponds to hair color, and another one that is hairstyle, etc. Right? I've really abstracted the information in the image. Now, this is not correct, because that's not actually how it works. There's not a neat correspondence between these latent space directions or vectors or whatever and real properties. So then that's not how the neural network works. That's how we wish it would work, because then it would be really easy to manipulate it. There's a lot of work that goes into making that latent space navigable or interpretable, like making it make sense. The computer program is looking for salient features among data. It doesn't know what a mustache is or what gender is, but if it's been trained on data sets in which some images are tagged man or woman and in which some have a mustache tag, it will quickly deduce a connection. Shawinsky and his former colleagues from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich, Dennis Terp and Chu Zhang, published a paper in late 2018 in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics. Shawinsky says they used generative modeling to investigate the physical changes that galaxies undergo as they evolve. The software they used treats the latent space somewhat differently from the way a generative adversarial network treats it. So it's not technically a GAN, but similar. The fundamental task that we wanted to approach was to what degree can we automate with existing technology the process of scientific hypothesis formulation, generation, and testing. And astrophysics is actually a great domain to try that out in part because astrophysics really has the biggest problem with hypothesis generation and testing because we can't perform experiments, right? We can't just take two galaxies and see what happens. Their model created artificial data sets as a way of testing hypotheses about physical processes. They asked, for instance, how the quenching of star formation, a sharp reduction in formation rates, is related to the increasing density of a galaxy's environment. For Shawinsky, the key question is how much information about stellar and galactic processes could be teased out of the data alone. So we said, all right, let's erase everything we know about astrophysics. Let's see to what degree we could rediscover this, but just using the data itself, like no underlying physics knowledge, no assumed models. First, they reduced the galaxy images to their latent space. Then, Shawinsky could tweak one element of that space in a way that corresponded to a particular change in the galaxy's environment, the density of its surroundings, for example. Then, he could regenerate the galaxy and see what differences turned up. So now have a hypothesis generation machine, because now I can take a whole bunch of galaxies that are originally in a low-density environment and make them look like they're in a high-density environment via this process. 
Shawinsky, Terp, and Zhang saw that as galaxies go from low to high density environments, they become redder in color and their stars become more centrally concentrated. Shawinsky says this matches existing observations about galaxies. But the question is why? Shawinsky says the next step hasn't yet been automated. So now I, as the human, have to come in and say, okay, what kind of physics could explain this effect to me? And said, well, there's sort of two good explanations we could come up with is our domain knowledge. One is, well, if galaxies become dusty, they become redder. So that's one explanation. And another explanation would be, if you shut off star formation, galaxies become redder. Okay, let's try both of those and see which one works better. With a generative model, both ideas can be put to the test. Elements in the latent space related to dustiness and star formation rates are changed to see how this affects galaxies' color and which ones are redder. And the answer is clear. It's the ones where the star formation rate dropped, not the ones where the dust changed. So we should favor that explanation for what happened here. Shawinsky says the approach is related to traditional simulation, but with critical differences. In a simulation, the approach is to say, okay, I think I know what the underlying physical laws are that give rise to everything that I see in the system. So I have a recipe for star formation. I have a recipe for how dark matter behaves, et cetera, et cetera. So I put all my hypotheses in there and I put them together and I let the simulation run and then I see, okay, does it look like reality? This is actually very powerful as an approach. The problem is that in the end, it's essentially assumption driven. So you say, if it works like this, the simulation behaves like that. Shawinsky says what he's done with generative modeling is in some sense exactly the opposite of a simulation. We don't know anything. We don't want to assume anything. We want the data itself to teach a system to tell us what might be going on. The apparent success of generative modeling in a study like this obviously doesn't mean that astronomers and grad students have been made redundant, but it appears to represent a shift in the degree to which learning about astrophysical objects and processes can be achieved by an artificial system that has little more at its electronic fingertips than a vast pool of data. Here's Kevin Shawinsky. It's not fully automated science, but it's demonstrating that we're capable of at least in part building the tools that make the process of science automatic. The neural network might be better at generating hypotheses and testing them, at least testing them rapidly. Generative modeling is powerful, but whether it truly represents a new approach to science is open to debate. David Hogg is a cosmologist at New York University and the Flatiron Institute, which, like Quanta, is funded by the Simons Foundation. He says the technique is impressive, but ultimately just a way of extracting patterns from data. That's what astronomers have been doing for centuries. In other words, it's an advanced form of observation plus analysis. What's new here is really quantitative rather than qualitative. It's not like the way we're doing astronomy has changed. It's more like the tools that are available to us to do certain kinds of work with data are much more sophisticated. Hogg's own work, like Shawinsky's, leans heavily on AI. Hogg has been using neural networks to classify stars according to their spectra and to infer other physical attributes of stars using data-driven models. One thing that we try to do with stars is measure their radial velocities incredibly precisely. And to measure a star's radial velocity incredibly precisely, you need an incredibly accurate model of the star's spectrum. 
And the more accurate your model is of the star's spectrum, the more accurate your radial velocity measurement is. And the most accurate model you can make of the star's spectrum is basically a summary of the data on the star rather than a physical model of the star, because physical models of the stars have various small issues that mean that they're not a perfect representation of the stellar spectrum. Whereas if you've observed the star hundreds of times at high signal to noise, all that data is extremely informative about the stellar spectrum. But Hogg sees his work, as well as Shawinsky's, as tried and true science. He says in particular, they're getting better at comparing data to data. Hogg says he views his work as still squarely in the observational mode. Whether they're conceptually novel or not, it's clear that AI and neural networks have come to play a critical role in contemporary astronomy and physics research. At the Heidelberg Institute for Theoretical Studies in Germany, physicist Kai Polsterer heads the Astroinformatics Group. It's a team of researchers focused on new data-centered methods of doing astrophysics. Recently, they've been using a machine learning algorithm to extract redshift information from galaxy data sets, a previously arduous task. You may remember that redshift is when the wavelength of light is stretched so it appears to shift toward the red part of the spectrum. Polsterer says these new AI-based systems can comb through data for hours on end, doing all of the tedious grunt work. I see it more like training your own clever assistants to help you getting rid of the boring stuff to do the cool, interesting science on your own. <laughs> but they're not perfect. In particular, Polsterer says the algorithms can only do what they've been trained to do. The system is agnostic regarding the input. Give it a galaxy, and the software can estimate its redshift and its age. But feed that same system a selfie or a picture of a rotting fish, and it will output a very wrong age for that. In the end, Polsterer says oversight by a human scientist is essential. It goes back to you as a researcher. You are the one in charge of doing the interpretation. I, as a scientist, can say, what do I consider likely enough or probable enough to be an interesting object for me. For his part, Brian Nord at Fermilab cautions that it's crucial that neural networks deliver not only results, but also error bars to go along with them, as every undergraduate is trained to do. If you're trying to measure a value and you don't have an error bar that you can defend, then nobody is going to put out a press release that claims to have discovered the nature of dark energy or measured its exact value. Nord says without reporting an estimate of the associated error of your measurements, no one will take your results seriously. Like many AI researchers, Nord is also concerned about how neural networks deliver results without offering a clear picture of how they were obtained. Nevertheless, I think that if we can adopt these and figure out how to make them more transparent, less opaque, these are potentially revolutionary. But not everyone feels that a lack of transparency is necessarily a problem. Linka Zetabarova is a researcher at the Institute of Theoretical Physics at CEA Socle in France. Zetabarova points out that human intuitions are often equally impenetrable. She says you look at a photograph and instantly recognize a cat. You somehow know this is a cat, but you don't know how you know. I think that the human brain, in some aspects, is also a black box. 
It's not only astrophysicists and cosmologists who are migrating toward AI-fueled, data-driven science. Quantum physicists have used neural networks to solve some of the toughest and most important problems in that field, such as how to represent the mathematical wave function describing a many-particle system. Roger Melko studies quantum physics at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics and at the University of Waterloo in Ontario. Melko says AI is essential because of what he calls the exponential curse of dimensionality. It was a big surprise that deep learning somehow found a solution or found a way to skirt around this curse of dimensionality. And so once we saw that, once we saw that there was like a big breakthrough in some very mathematically similar problem, we started thinking, why not? Why not apply those techniques to our own curse of dimensionality, which is just the you know, exponential dimensionality of the quantum wave function. That is, the possibilities for the form of a wave function grow exponentially with the number of particles in the system it describes. The difficulty is similar to trying to work out the best move in a game like chess or Go. You try to peer ahead to the next move, imagining what your opponent will play, and then choose the best response. But with each move, the number of possibilities multiplies. Of course, AI systems have mastered both of these games, chess decades ago and Go in 2016. Whether Kevin Shawinsky is right in claiming that he's found a third way of doing science, or whether, as Hogg says, it's merely traditional observation and data analysis on steroids, it's clear AI is changing the flavor of scientific discovery. And it's certainly accelerating it. How far will the AI revolution go in science? Michelle Yoon helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Dan Falk's full article, How Artificial Intelligence is Changing Science, on our website, quantummagazine.org. And if you're looking for some reading material heading into the new year, the MIT Press has published two quanta books, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire and The Prime Number Conspiracy, available now at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or your local bookstore. <laughs>